0: Well, so far in the book of Isaiah, the people of God, like us, they want what only God can give, listen, but they want it without having to get it from God. They, we, can accept the reality of God so long as he stays in his own lane and allows us to succeed without him. But in chapter 33, something changes. What is it? The people of God who have been living with God as their lucky charm of last resort, well, they they come to him as their last resort. And what they find is that God is waiting for them in the middle of their failure. And he's there with grace to receive them and heal them and transform them. And so, chapter 23 of Isaiah here is for people who haven't been trusting in God. Either secular people who insist there is no God in whom to trust, or people in the church who live with God as option B, a safety net, for if their side hustles fail. Before we get into this, let me pray. Father, when we read scripture and we study it from thousands of years ago, we can be tempted to point our fingers at those people and say, gosh, how crazy they are, they're stupid. And yet we realize that in their lives of wanting what only you can give but not from you, we see we do that too. We see that we want you as lucky charm, as a rabbit's foot instead of our all-sufficient God who loves and cares for us. So for each person here, including myself, we pray that these words of Isaiah would come true into our lives, that we would see your mercy and your grace, how you do meet us in the midst of our failure, we pray. Amen. Are you familiar with how pearls are formed? It's truly amazing, right? They're not formed by going to Zales and buy them off the shelf, right? So, no, what happens is an oyster has an irritant inside the shell. Maybe it's like a wayward piece of food, a little bitty particle, tiny thing. And it becomes trapped in the shell, and so the oyster begins coating the irritant with a layer of aragonite. And between each layer of this aragonite, the oyster secretes a very thin layer Uh, of membrane-forming protein. You don't need to memorize all this, guys. There's no exam. It's called conchialin. I probably butchered that. The composite material is called nacre. We just call it Mother of Pearl. The crystalline structure of the Mother of Pearl reflects light, giving the pearls a glorious, beautiful luster. Think about it. An irritant becomes a precious and priceless pearl, which is glorious to behold. Isaiah chapter 33 is about irritants becoming precious and priceless and glorious to behold, all because God coats them time and time again with his grace. A quick reminder of the historical context the brutal nation of Assyria is at the doors of Judah and Jerusalem, about ready to overrun it. Remember how God had told Ahaz, the king, do not worry. I am your all-sufficient Lord. I will take care of you. But instead of trusting in the all-sufficiency of God, they, they opted for self-sufficiency. The danger looked too big to entrust to God, and they didn't want to wait. For his timing and so you remember they went down to Egypt and they took their gold and their silver and they bought horses and chariots and fighting men to 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 win the victory but still the Assyrians pressed closer and closer to Jerusalem and now the army has surrounded Jerusalem so what did the officials do they went listen they went into the Lord's temple stripped it of its gold and silver. They loaded it onto carts, walked it through the city gates, and delivered it to the Assyrian commanders that were off in the distance. Now consider the optics here. The people reject God as a useless ally, and then they robbed a temple so that he could pay the bill for it. Now, the people didn't realize how foolish they were, at least not yet, but they watch as the Assyrians in the distance, they are looking for them to, to pack up their tents and go home. But then they realize they've been duped. The Lord's treasure is given away, and the Assyrians plan to attack anyway. Then it dawns on them. In their last-ditch effort of self-salvation, they made a grave error. And then, with nowhere else to turn, they turn to God. They don't turn to God because they love him. They don't turn to God because they truly believe that he is the fount of every blessing. Their turning is paltry, But God receives them gladly. Isaiah chapter 33 is for all who find that they've given themselves to anything and everything but God, and now they see themselves in sober reality. Life really doesn't work apart from God. And even though you come to Him as a last resort, As you watch all of your opportunities fall like sand through your fingers, God meets you there. That's where it must begin. Humbled before God so that God may lift you up. Isaiah shows this magnificent truth. My homiletics professors would be upset with me. Our propositions are supposed to be really short, but here we go. God takes our feeble, last-ditched, half-hearted commitments to him, and he takes us to himself, and he makes us to be like precious, priceless pearls. And we come to realize that what we really want is what only God can give, and we trust in his all-sufficiency to give it to us in his timing. And then so we become thirsty for God and for God's influence in our lives. That is what Isaiah is showing us this morning. And we're going to investigate it under three headings. The life of trust, the life of repentance, and the life of renewal. We are presented with the life of trust in verses 1 through 6. And the big idea here is this. Feel free to open your Bibles now if you want. When you finally come to trust God, you will find that not only is God real, but God is really for you. Problem is, listen, sadly, this is true, but we have to exhaust all other options before we will come to God as our last resort. In chapter 33, the people are finally there trusting God. Now, how do we know? Well, just one little word. The very first word of our text, verse 1, gives us a clue. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Ah, this word has been used before in Isaiah, but now... This one little word, ah, is an ah of judgment, but not against Judah, but against Assyria. Assyria is the destroyer that hasn't yet been destroyed, the betrayer who has not yet been betrayed. Now, why this change? Because the people's hearts are changing. They have always called God their king, but now they're beginning to relate to him as king. Now, what does this change of... Head and heart look like. Verse 2. The people we we see there have a new trust and delight in the Lord. O oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. What a great verse to memorize. See how different the mindset is? Asking for grace from the Lord and then committing to wait upon God's timing. So often we don't want to wait, or when we do wait, we get impatient and we move on with our self rescue plans, right? But here the people are expressing their trust in God. He alone will be their salvation. You know, this is kind of like a football team in a huddle. I know I'm, last week I had like four sports illustrations, this week just one, okay? I'm not going to mansplain anything, I promise you. All right. So what do they do before the play? They huddle up, and they look at the quarterback. Now, the quarterback today gets his plays through a speaker in his helmet and in his ear. So the quarterback and the team, they're all there, and the coach speaks the play to the quarterback, and they all wait for the quarterback to say, this is what we're going to do. Then they break huddle, and then they work as a team. My friends... This is the life of one who trusts God. We look to our quarterback and wait. God's people in Judah have entered into the huddle, so to speak, and they're looking to the Lord. They're waiting upon him, asking for his grace. And what Isaiah wants us to see is that though their faith is rather forced and feeble, right, it is also genuine. Genuine faith produces confidence. We see this in verses 3 and 4. Here Isaiah speaks of the people now. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. This is before the people now. And your spoil is gathered as a caterpillar gathered, as locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted and he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, Wisdom and knowledge and the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Do you see their new confidence? When they are lifted by their trust in God, the nations flee before them and the spoils are gathered in by the people. And the Lord is now exalted in their midst and he provides what? Stability in their time. This, listen, this is the people of God finally believing that God is all they really need. Let me ask you, are you there yet? Does that describe you? Is God all you really need? Or do you need God and something else? You know, they used to fear everything but God. Now their healthy fear and love for God is all they have. Oh, we'll live this way, right? Listen to how uh, my friend Ray Ortland Jr. describes this. Here's the point. When we really trust God, lo and behold, we find that He's there. When God is all we have, we find that God is all we need. This is how trusting God changes our experience of God. When we respect Him enough to let him take control. He becomes the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. And no one else can give those treasures to you, not even yourself. That is the first step back to God, starting to trust him. Now for our second step, the life of repentance. You know, repentance begins when we recognize that Living as if God doesn't exist, well, it only ends in failure. And this also means that we must come to experience our own brokenness. We must come to realize that the self-sufficient life is never going to pan out. And we see this in verses 7 through 9. Behold, their heroes. This is Judah's heroes, right? The enemies are outside, and uh, the heroes, they're crying now in the street. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The, tra- tra- the traveler ceases. No one's booking orbits.com right now. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. No one cares about others. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. My friends, their their peace negotiations have failed, and the invader is at the gates. The people tried to save themselves apart from God, and here they are now at the end of the rope in deep distress and brokenness. Ortlund writes, listen, self-salvation makes a lot of sense until you try it. No one anywhere, even under ideal conditions, has ever figured out how to live well without God. That is the point here. Think about social media these days, um, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Think about how like 99 out of 100 posts, people are saying, look at my life. Look how wonderful my self-sufficient life is. Look at me as I share my amazing travels to Lebanon and Sharon and Bashan and Carmel and the Hamptons. But think about this. What if somehow, I don't know how you would do this. Maybe we'd call Elon Musk. He'd figure it out. But what if social media automatically posted every hour exactly how you were feeling? Think about how many people delete their accounts. Now, I don't want people to know exactly how broken and needy I am no one wants to see the world to see how they don't measure up even to their own expectations let alone the expectations of others but listen especially you younger people here god's way is upside down to this very world we live in the world says fake it till you make it if you don't know that well that's what the world says you may be too young to have heard it just fake it till you make it god says Stop faking it. Let me make it for you. See, it's when you're at the end of your rope, weeping bitterly in the streets at how you failed. It is there that something unexpected happens. What is it? God meets you there. When we are defeated, downcast, broken, and so disappointed with ourselves and what we've done with our lives... That is when God enters in. That's when He declares, Now we are getting somewhere. And that's what He says in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. For every time you find yourself in genuine brokenness and repentance before God, God has a now moment for you. And what is it that God's arising to do? He he, he rises to pronounce judgment upon the people's enemies, the ones who've caused all this fear and trembling and anxiety and brokenness in your life, all of the crying and weeping, God is saying, now I'm arising. I've got this for you. We see this in verse 11 and 12. You, that's Assyria. You conceive chaff. Like, okay, that's like nothing. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you and the people's will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. This is the work God does when his people trust in him. Listen, all we do is cry in the streets and weep over our failures and are all sufficient Lord battles for us. Do you believe this? Do you want this? And so think this through. Your failure is God's opportunity. But now, also, this is not life handing you lemons and you making lemonade. No, this is you realizing that you are the lemon. (laughs) And God is making lemonade. Right? We laugh, but that's the distinction. But my friends, you need to be needy. You need to be sick over your sin. You need to finally be at the end of your rope where you, say, where you say, self-sufficiency never gets me anywhere good. It's like when Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but Sinners. If you do not think you're a sinner, you will never hear Jesus' call. Now, the problem with most people, as Jesus sees it, is not that Christ won't save them, but it's that most people do not see themselves in need of being saved. Is that you today? But now the Christian has come to realize that, that he or she that both need the save the saving from God and also that they cannot save themselves and they've tried and they failed. And with what little strength was left they repent and they trust in Christ and guess what God met them there. If you're a Christian God met you there. And guess what He continues to meet us here. why? Because the Christian life is a life of daily continual repentance. <laughs> It's part of our DNA. So Isaiah has shown us the life of trust and the life of repentance, now for the life of renewal. Now the last point itself could be a sermon, uh, but we don't have enough time, so I'm gonna keep it short. But there are three points that Isaiah is showing us, things that happen with this renewal. We experience a new position, a new path, and a new experience. First, the new position. We see the new position in verse 13. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. You see that? Here we're called to acknowledge God's might. See, our renewal begins with the understanding of the all-sufficiency of God. Listen, this is big. If you have any hope of a life well-lived, It must begin with you waking up from your dreamy illusion of your own self-sufficiency. Listen, you cannot have a fruitful, happy, satisfying life and keep God at a distance. Why is this? It's because God made us for a relationship with him. Makes sense, right? Now, when you come to the end of your rope, and you finally realize that your dreams of self-sufficiency are actually ruining you, it is there, what, that, that, that you see Jesus, the risen Lord, calling you to come to him and abide in him. Remember John's words in chapter 15, where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And then Jesus says this, For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, let us acknowledge his all-sufficient might and let us yield ourselves 100% to Christ and his will for us, which leads to our next point, our new lives. You know, repentance isn't, understand this, it isn't just turning away from how you lived. Whew! glad I'm done with that. No, it's also turning towards a a new way of living by God's grace. As John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In a sense, this is what Isaiah writes of in verses 14 through 16. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has ceased the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Who despises the gain of oppressions. Who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He dwells, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Please understand this, God is unsafe. He is a consuming fire. He is unsafe, but he is good. It is only because of his grace towards us that we can be brought near him. And in his goodness, God makes us to be safe in his presence. So it is right and good to have a holy fear of God, to respect him, to live in awe of him, problem is we think about it we, we tend to fear the wrong things right we fear the assyrians of our lives and we blame the world for our problems ortland points out that that we 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 ask the wrong questions like why isn't god helping me what practical good is god in my life but when god's holiness gets a hold of us we start asking New questions like, why should God care about me at all? How can my life be compatible with someone like him? That new sense of God and a desire to walk in ways that please him, are, are, it's a big step in our renewal. Let me ask you, do you desire to walk in the ways of the Lord, to please him? So this new life helps us to see the all-sufficiency of God and desire to honor him with how we live our lives. But also the new life gives us a new way of experiencing everything. New new lenses to look at the world through, so to speak. Isaiah is talking about a whole new way of looking at the world with Christ as your king. Verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. And then skipping down to verse 22. Look at how the people see God now. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Whole new way of looking at the world. A new way of experiencing everything. Christian, we have a king who is beautiful. Our Lord. King Jesus. He is not like any other kings. He, he laid down his life for us. He's risen from the grave in victory for us. And he fights our battles for us. Now, do you see what happens when you break out of your nervous addiction to crises and self-salvation and you entrust your life to King Jesus, his salvation comes upon us and we start enjoying God and the life that he has given us. And then in verses 20 and 21, Isaiah says that God provides the thing, listen, the thing we've longed for all along but failed to experience. Why? Because we've strived for it in our own self-sufficiency. What is it, the thing that we've been striving for in all of our strength apart from God? It's peace. It's peace. True peace, peace in the midst of our trials, peace in our hardships, but also peace forever and ever to come. Verse 20 and 21. Behold Zion, this, that's another name for Jerusalem, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty, listen, will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams, but not so broad where no galley of oars can go nor majestic ships can pass. What's happening? In verse 20, peace is described as a fe- feastful delight, like an untroubled habitation. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's peace in your home, okay. Uh, like an immovable tent, like no one speaks like this today. It's an immovable tent whose stakes cannot be plucked up. Verse 20 is described as both a place of broad rivers, so that these aren't intermittent crink- creeks where you're like, oh, there's no water to drink today but they're also not such broad rivers where what? Enemy ships, galleys with men roaming on oars and swords to attack, they can't make it up either. God's end game is uninterrupted peace for his people in the middle of life's storms. Do you believe this? The last point may be the most important. With his renewal of us, God wins an astounding victory. First, in verse 23, we see that God, listen, God uses our broken imperfections to win his victories in this world. Verse 23, I'll tell you ahead of time, it describes a sailing ship, all right? They've been at you here, all right? A sailing ship, Mark Dodd, Uh, but it needs an overhaul, right? Uh, A big overhaul, and yet, and yet somehow God uses it to succeed and the spoils are divided here we go Your cords hang loose they cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out Now in spite of this then pray and spoil in abundance will be divided even the lame will take the <laughs> Christian, we are God's sailing ship that he uses despite our need of an overhaul. And listen, God doesn't wait until his renewal of us is complete before he uses us to sail into this world with the mercy and grace of God, uh, to sail into this world with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God doesn't wait for us to become perfect before he uses us. We are all ships that need a major overhaul. If you don't feel that way, you need an overhaul of your pride. This is wonderful news for us, is it not? Listen, before Christ comes into our lives, we we live self-sufficient lives, but, but we have this nagging, Feeling that we aren't actually good enough to achieve what we want. Right? You felt this, right? Our cords hang loose and the sail and mast are out of place. We just hope people don't notice. We're going to fake it till we make it. But when we trust in the all-sufficiency of Christ, our King, all that changes. Yep, my cords are loose. My mass is hanging kind of wonky. Guess what? The Lord is using me anyway. His mercy and his grace are coming to me. I'm a mess, but I'm a mess that's loved by God. See how that changes things? My friends, it's not that our cords are mended instantly, but our Lord uses us. Loose cords and all. Listen, there's no point this side of heaven in which Jesus says, now, finally, you've cleaned up your act. Now I can use you. Finally. No, it, my friends, Jesus promised to bear fruit in us from day one, every day of our loose cord lives when we abide in him. Lastly, and we're only going to end on this, verse 24 Puts this all in perspective. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. What is Isaiah saying? Remember, the, one of the main themes of Isaiah is this, that God will purposely bring hardship in trials, into our lives. People who believe in God, he will do this to us so that we lay aside our self, self-sufficient, self-centered way of living so that we stop looking at God as our lucky charm so that we get what we want in life. So then instead we find God to be our all-sufficient Heavenly Father to whom we plead with great joy thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when Isaiah writes, no inhabitant will say I'm sick, he's, he's saying God, God will cause you to be sick so that he can heal you. And when he does that, you're like, ah, I really was never sick. I needed that, right? He's, he's saying that, that though God wounds us over our sins, he also heals us. And in the end, we praise him for that. So it all hinges on this. Has your iniquity been forgiven by God? Has Christ borne your sins away from you? Or are you still denying them and thereby clinging to them? Listen, this chapter that we've studied makes this point abundantly clear. God meets us in our failure. Our failure, not our success. Like the ancient people of God in our text, we must at some point come to see God as our last-ditch effort to stave off disaster. We come to God only after exhausting all other means of self-salvation, right? We come to God half expecting him to let us down. We come to God reluctantly, but he welcomes us joyfully, which means this. God is more ready to meet us than we're ready to meet him. Which leads us to the Lord's Supper. Who's ready to draw near and meet with the Lord? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are so drawn in to our own self-sufficiency that we hate to see it crumble before us. We want to say, no, this cannot be true. Look at me. I can do this. We're thankful that not only, God, do you put us in circumstances where we come to the end of our rope, but that is where you meet us, at the end of our rope. And there everything changes for our good and for your glory. Amen.